these everyday reminders of our fractured fellowship with the Father, needing gift after gift to wipe the slate clean, just enough for good enough. But the cycle would be broken through the final solution for sin, the offering himself, offering rescue and freedom and hope and life, life and more life. The ecstatic exuberance of a gift freely given and the joy found in bringing back to God what belonged to him all along every unearned opportunity to give back to the giver through each aromatic offering of the ordinary not born in the obligatory but instead with delight and devotion surrender and worship amen yes hallelujah the wild and infinite becoming up close and intimate creating, calling, and communing together, creator and creation, orienting the hearts of this new lineage around his son so that each moment, every success and failure, thought, dream, and behavior may continually find its center in the God there is to encounter. I have some fantastic news. We have found the lost Ark of the Covenant. It was being held captive by filmmaker Tim Mahoney in his studio. And uh, Tim has lent us this beautiful replica, actually, that he uses for filming. And Tim didn't ask me to do this. This is something I'm doing on my own. But I encourage you to visit his website, PatternsOfEvidence.com. I subscribe to it. And I get all the latest updates and archaeological findings, uh, especially in biblical lands. And he has fantastic documentaries and other information there. You may want to check it out. But I thought this is the best way, the right way to bring to a close our series on encounter, where we've been looking at the tabernacle and the temple and primarily talking about how God wants to dwell with us, how he wants to be close to us. And how God approached his people and gave them the design for the tabernacle and then the design for the sacred ark of the covenant and on top of it the mercy seat and it was hidden in the holy of holies behind the veil. It was where God was most present amongst his people. But sadly, even at that, only one person could actually come into God's presence And that was only once a year, the high priest, after making atonement for his own sins, the sins of the nation, he could dwell just for a little while in the Holy of Holies and then would have to leave and it'd be a whole other year before he could come in again. But God wants to be with us so much that God literally tore the veil in two. When Christ died on the cross, that's what happened. The veil now in the temple was torn in two. It was God's way of saying, now because of what my son has done, anybody can come, anybody can come into my presence. Well, what did Jesus do for us? We've talked about it, and we talk about it, we'll continue to talk about it many times. He literally became our sin. He became our shame. He became our regret and our guilt. Like a holy sponge, he just absorbed all of that out of our life and carried it with him to the cross and died for us. And and it all died with him. And God is therefore able then to impute or place into our lives through 
the presence of his spirit, all that Christ has accomplished for us. And, and so he imputes to us righteousness. We're the righteousness of God. He imputes to us holiness. We become the holiness of God himself. And that's why we can now experience God's presence in our life because, because the sacred presence of God that was symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant is no longer found in a tabernacle or in a temple, but has come to reside in your heart and my heart. This was God's throne in the Old Testament. God's throne is now, if I'm a follower of Christ, God's throne is now in and on my heart and in my life. But there's a difference between being declared holy and righteous and actually living out the holiness and the righteousness of God. That is our spiritual journey till we get to heaven someday, till we stand before God's presence. It's to press into what's been declared truth about us, to realize in our life what's been placed in our lives. And as God gave Adam and Eve a choice in the garden, you can obey me or disobey me, what we could say is that God leaves that choice still with us even after he comes into our life. I can either obey him in my life and experience his life-giving presence, his holiness, his righteousness, or I can disobey him in my life and not live that out. And when I, when I do that, the Bible says I'm grieving or I'm quenching the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, who becomes all of this in my life. And so every day I face the question, am I going to yield to the Spirit's presence in my life and produce his fruit? And we have a list of that fruit up here on the screen. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, finish it with me, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Don't you love being around people like that who are practicing that? They're enjoyable be around a peaceful, joyful, kind, unselfish person. Yes. And don't you want to be that kind of person? I'm a little concerned about the balcony. I didn't hear anybody from the balcony. <clears throat> don't you guys want to be that kind of person? Yeah. You're just drowned out by the folks down here, I know. Or I can say, you know what? I don't feel like allowing God to work through my life today. I'm going to bear the fruit of my flesh. I'm just going to do it on my own. And, you know, when we try to do it on our own, this is what we usually end up producing. The opposite, fear, despair, worry, mood swings, bitterness, sadness, phoniness, superiority, impulsiveness. Any of you have been around somebody like that this week? Live with them, maybe. Maybe it's you. Let's be honest with each other. Just because we're believers does not necessarily mean we're producing what we're capable of by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is true that, behave, that believers can sometimes behave badly. Have you ever seen that? Experienced that? Look at the Bible. It's full of examples of that. I love the honesty of the Bible. Take David. On one hand, call a man after God's own heart, but then on the other hand, he could behave very, very badly. Or take the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul behaved badly once when he got into a squabble with Barnabas. It was kind of rude and mean. And we have seen it throughout all of church history, even in these recent years, and headline news, Christian leaders and pastors who behave badly. I'm guessing every one of you knows a believer who has behaved badly. 
live with them, work with them, work for them. Maybe it's even you. I had an opportunity to behave very badly this past week. A couple of days ago, I took my two grandsons who are visiting us from Austria fishing. We just go fish at one of the little lakes around here, just do some sun fishing. And we were having fun. They were catching fish. And all of a sudden, this guy shows up with his dogs off the leash. Now, I love dogs. But if the rules say keep them on a leash, keep them on a leash. So they show up and scared us spitless. I mean, also, we're just standing there fishing. Like, rawr, rawr, rawr. And like, ah, all right, what's going on? And he doesn't say, oops, sorry, or I'll call my dogs off. He doesn't say anything. And then the dog, one of the dogs, it was a beautiful little border collie, went over to my, uh, where I had all my bait and tackle and hooks and things like that. And he didn't say anything. I mean, the dog's just sniffing around there, making a mess. I'm thinking, come on, do something about this. So finally I spoke up and I said, hey, I, I think you should get your dog out of here. And he looked at me and says, why should I? Oh, man, did I have an opportunity to behave badly in that moment. I could hardly believe what I heard him say. And I wanted to say something to him and do something, but I thought, I can't. My grandsons are here right now. The Holy Spirit's supposed to be living in my life right now. And maybe he goes to Wooddale and I don't recognize him and he doesn't recognize me. So I said, well, there's hooks in there. And, he, and then he said, oh, I guess that's a good reason he called the dogs off. Oh, my goodness. I was so unhappy. You know what I'm talking about, right? It happens as we sometimes behave badly. The question is, how can we behave the right way? How can, how can we behave more like, like Christ and less like ourselves? How can we lean into this supernatural presence that lives in our lives? Now just think about that for a minute. The supernatural presence of God lives in you. John chapter 15 is where I'd like you to turn with me as we finish our series out. I want to talk about what it means to let Christ out, so to speak, in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version because <clears throat> it treats the text the best in the, in the Greek. And I want you to listen for a word that I'll emphasize that's used over and over in this passage. Here we go, John 15. Hear the word of the Lord. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. In the Greek, it actually reads, I'm the vine, the true. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Your version may say remain. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's so important to understand. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So joy in my life comes from this whole abiding that we keep hearing used over and over and over in the text. So why don't you write this thought down if you would like to help us as we move through the text. And that is that Jesus is the source of my ability to live a holy life. We've been talking about that. Without Jesus, I can't live a holy life. He makes it possible by his death and resurrection for me to be forgiven and for the Holy Spirit to enter into my life. You know, what's fascinating about the life of Jesus, read it like in the Gospel of Luke, is how his life is attached to the power and working of the Holy Spirit. For instance, we learn in Luke chapter 1 that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is conceived in the womb of Mary. We read that when Jesus is baptized by John, the Holy Spirit came upon him. We read that the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness to face and have victory over temptation. And Luke chapter 4, Jesus gets up and says in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So if Jesus and his humanity modeled reliance on the Holy Spirit, how much more should you and you and I rely on the Holy Spirit as well. Now, let me ask you a question as we go over here because I've taken John 15 symbolically and placed it here on the mercy seat, kind of thinking about the presence of God because this is all about God's presence. And, and I want to ask you a question. We've got the vine here and we've got the, we've got the grapes right here. And these aren't plastic. They're real. We don't spare any expenses here, all right? And uh, I've, got, I've got one of these grapes. And, and here's the question. It's a very complicated uh, question. What kind of seeds do you have to plant in order to get grapes? Grape seeds. If I plant watermelon seeds, what do I get? If I plant apple seeds, what do I get? If I plant grape seeds, I get grapes, right? Same thing is true. I cannot produce spiritual fruit on my own. God has to be the source. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we're not talking about our gifts, our talents, our personal abilities. This is something that God does through us. It is supernatural in that sense. And we'll talk at the end about the evidence of that in our life. So we're talking about something that God produces in our lives. The fruit is, is God's fruit. It's evidence of God's presence in our lives. The question becomes, how do we, how do, we do that? So write this note down if you want. That is that the holy fruit of God's presence is experienced in my life when I learn to abide. Did you remember that term? Abide, 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 over and over again. When I learn to abide in Christ. And in order to abide in Christ, I've got to learn to yield to the presence of his spirit, the Holy Spirit living in me. Just as Jesus abided in the spirit, I must abide as he abided in his Father, I must abide as well. But that raises the question, what does it really mean to abide? Well, we go back to our example again of the vine, right? Jesus tells us, I am the vine, okay? 
He doesn't say you are the fruit. The fruit is supernatural. It's what God produces in us. And by the way, it's not fruits of the Spirit. It's, it's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit is love. The joy, the peace, etc. are all different aspects of love. But you and I, we're the branches. We're the branches. The branches that are attached to the vine. But here's the question. How are the, how are the branches attached to the vine? Are the branches like hanging on to the vine? Ah, I'm hang on to this. Because that's how a lot of us treat our relationship with Christ. I wish I had a pull-up bar in here. We could have a pull-up bar contest. We could say, not, not how many pull-ups can you do, but how long can you hang on? And even if we had the most fit athlete in the world here right now, hanging on to the pull-up bar, eventually, eventually their muscles fatigue, their joints fatigue, and they start to shake and to sweat, and they're going to let go, and they're going to fall off. And that's how a lot of us approach Christ. We are trying to hang on. On to God. I'm telling you, if you try to hang on to God, you're going to fall off. And as soon as you fall off, the enemy there is there, the evil one is there to remind you that you have fallen off. And it's probably not the first time you've fallen off. And he reminds us over and over, there you go again, you fell off again, you fell off again. Why don't you just give up? It's actually a great question. You ought to give up. You say, ah, oh, can't believe you said that. Well, here's what I mean. You've got to give up trying to hang on and instead let God hang on to you. Which is very different. Very different. Me hanging on is my effort, my energy. God hanging on is yielding to his effort and his energy. Christ attaches us to himself. By his grace, through faith. And then hangs on to me. But it's really hard to hang on to somebody who's wiggling. Marsha, my wife, was, was trained as a lifeguard. And you know, lifeguards all understand something very important. And all of us who are in the water should understand this as well. If you get in trouble in the water and the lifeguard is coming to rescue you, the worst thing you can do is struggle and fight. But it is human instinct to want to, when you're going under, and I've had that feeling before, to want, you know, to want to thrash. Well, what happens is you hit and hurt the person trying to rescue you. You grab hold of them. They can't rescue you. You're taking them down. The best thing, and it's not instinct, the best thing is to relax. And let them have you. A trained lifeguard knows how then to swim and get you to safety. We're the same way with God, aren't we? We're like we fight and we struggle with God. With issues and with life. Rather than learning to abide. And to abide means to rest. R-E-S-T. Let's say rest together. Rest. But it's hard for us to rest. In a material culture like we have in America and here in Minnesota, we don't know how to rest. Even when we're resting, we're still moving. <laughs> when we take a day off, when we say, oh, I'm going to rest, we're, our rest usually involves activity, doesn't it? And, and we've got to learn how to rest in Christ. How do we do that? Write this down. Number one, practice giving up complete control to the Holy Spirit. Think about the lifeguard rescuing the swimmer. 
I, I, if I'm the one who's in trouble and the lifeguard's coming, I've got to give control of my body and my life to the lifeguard. I need to give control of my life to the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to tell you right now, I am a control freak. Do I have any other freaks in the room? Man, I struggle with that. And I think we probably, in all honesty, all struggle with it, don't we? Huh? Isn't that our nature? We all want to be God, so if you all want to be God, we all want to be in control, right? Well, we try to control all kinds of things. We try to control our grandchildren, our children, our parents, our spouse, our boss, our neighbor, our employees, our employer, the economy, politics, the culture. I mean, we're, all, we're trying to always control things. I don't know about you, but that just wears you out when you're trying to control everyone and everything. We try to control our health. We try to control our crises in life. We try to control our problems, our challenges, our struggles. And it just, in a material world, it just becomes so overwhelming sometimes, doesn't it? I was reading uh, in Dallas Willard. He's now gone to be the Lord. He was a, a philosopher and, and professor, I think, at USC. And he wrote a book called Hearing God. And in it, he tells the story about, a true story about a businessman uh, by the name of Robert F. McFarlane. And I want to read the story to you, if you don't mind, uh, and listen carefully what he says. He says, Robert C. McFarlane was a well-known businessman in the Los Angeles area. He moved to California from Oklahoma in 1970. And within just a few days of his arrival, due to a disastrous misunderstanding with a close friend, he had to take control of an insurance agency. He did not want it, but he had to make it succeed in order to save the large amount of money he had invested in it. By the spring of 1973, he was in the third straight year of constant strain and stress in the operation of the business. And I'm going to guess some of you, just when you hear me say constant strain and stress, are thinking to yourself, that's me. I just, I feel like my life has been one relentless marathon of stress and strain. You feel it. You feel it. He had recently been converted to the ministry of Rolling Hills Covenant Church in Southern California in answer to the prayer of his wife, Betty, and her many Christian friends. Thank God for a, a Christian spouse who is praying for her husband. But that doesn't mean everything is roses. One day, that spring, the continual danger of defeat, the dark hours of effort, the frustration at every turn, and the hardened memories of the cause of his financial difficulties came upon him with special force. As he drove toward the office, he suddenly was filled with a frantic urge to turn left onto the road out of town and just disappear. I wonder how many of us at some point in our life hasn't had that same urge to just turn left and disappear. Like life has so overwhelmed us, so overcrowded us financially, relationally, physically, mentally, whatever it is, we just want to disappear. Just want to disappear. But into the midst of his inner turmoil, there came a command, pull over to the curb I wonder whose voice that was. As he relates it, it was as if the words were written on the windshield. After he pulled over, there came to him as though from someone with him in the car these words, My son had strains that you will never know. 
And when he had those strays, he turned to me, and that's what you should do, Robert. After hearing those words, McFarlane sat at the wheel for a long time, sobbing aloud. He then drove on to his Long Beach office where he faced 22 major outstanding problems. All the most significant issues, whether they concern company disagreements, clients deciding to remain with his agency, payments by clients of late premiums, or whatever, were substantially resolved by that day's end. Not all. Not completely, but substantially resolved. Why? Because he surrendered everything to God. Even if the problems are still there on the docket, there's just something that happens when you transfer the burden of them to God. Then all of a sudden, they aren't the problems they used to be because you know that God is in control. I was reading in my quiet time today in the book of Zechariah, and there's a verse in there that basically says, and God sees the whole world and knows about everything including your life and my life. And though I may not understand what he's doing and why he's allowing me to go through it, if I can just surrender control to him, I find, I begin to find peace. So I'm wondering this morning, is there someone or something in your life right now that you need to give to God? You just need to surrender him or her or it or them or that to God. And I say, God, I've done my best. I'm doing my best. But I can't keep going like this. Handing them over him, it, they, whatever it is to you. And you may have to practice doing that every day, but practice it then. It's the beginning of rest. It's the beginning of learning to abide. Secondly, practice listening to and obeying God's word. You see, when I'm not occupied with everything I'm trying to control, I actually have time to listen to God. But listen carefully. God doesn't shout. And in fact, if God has to shout to get your attention, that's usually not a good thing. God has a habit of whispering. Say, uh, what'd you say? I say, God has a habit of whispering. Say, I don't know if they turned the mic off right now or what, but I can't hear what you just said. Could you speak up, Pastor, please? Say, God has a habit of whispering. Say, either I have to leave the service right now, Pastor Dale, or I'm going to have to come like really close, maybe like right up to your face to hear what you're trying to say right now. God has a habit of whispering. See, that's the deal. God doesn't like to shout. God so often, we'll see this in our next series, God so often speaks in a still, small voice. He does that on purpose so that we will, we will have to lean in to hear what he's saying to us. But we live in a noisy world, don't we? Media, people, news, bad news, all the cacophony of noises around us. To be still. Listen to God. God speaks in dreams and visions still. God speaks through people, but primarily God speaks through his word. And if I'm consistently in his word listening, it's just amazing how God speaks to me about all kinds of things that I can actually speak back to him about. Be still 
and know that I am God. Listen. And obey. And obey. Now, if I'm not listening to God, it means I'm listening to a whole bunch of other people. And listen, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you are not your own person. None of us are. We are all the result of an environment, what feels like an infinite environment that's always pressing on us from the moment we are conceived. You're made from a whole bunch of input. The question is, whose input? I'd rather get the input of truth than the input of opinions and lies that pervade our society, our culture today. I need to hear what God has to say. So if I'm not listening to God, I'm listening to somebody. And if I'm not obeying God's word, I'm in disobedience. And I don't know if you ever noticed this or not, but it takes a lot of effort to sin. Have you noticed that? takes a lot of effort to sin. This is an interesting passage in Galatians chapter 5, right before the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 19, Paul lists some of the, some of the, the bad fruit of the flesh. And uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, it goes like this in the ESV. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's just a partial list. Like a whole lot of sin. But what I want to draw your attention to, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And he uses the word ergo or ergon in the Greek for which we get energy. It takes a lot of energy to sin. I was in a shared limo once coming back from the airport when we were living in, in, in Chicago. And uh, the guy that got in with me was like a very important person. I knew that because he let it be known. All right? And he let it be known by his cell phone conversation on the phone. And I found out it was honestly it was so loud. It's like the dude must want me to hear it. So I'm all ears. I got nothing better to do. And I found out he was an attorney. And he had this very important client, and he's defending his client uh, from the government. Can you imagine such a thing? And uh, he's telling his client what he should do, what he shouldn't do, who he should talk to, who he should not talk to, what he should say, what he shouldn't say, and how they're going to beat this rap. <laughs> and I thought to myself, after listening to this guy for an entire 30 minutes on the way to the hotel where the limo's going to drop him off, uh, I listened and I thought, man, it takes a lot of energy to try to get around the law. It takes a lot of energy to sin. You ever just think about just telling one lie. Anybody here ever lied? I just want to make sure we're all on the same planet. It takes a lot of energy to lie because once I tell my lie, I usually end up having to tell several more lies to cover my lie that I told. And then we get in deep. It takes a lot of energy to have a marital affair. Man, now you've got to do all kinds of stuff to cover it up and deal with it. And the ruin, the havoc it brings into your family. This takes a lot of energy to sin. Imagine all the energy we would save if we just listen and obey God. That's our, that's our whole opportunity that God gives to us if we just listen and obey. One last thought. We need to practice releasing the flow of God's presence in our life. You see, if I learn to surrender control, 
if I learn to listen and I learn to obey, I end up with the capacity now to experience God's presence. And I don't know about you, but whenever I go out to eat someplace I really enjoy or I have a flavor of ice cream I just love or I find a brand new ice cream shop like I found in, in uh, what's the name of that place? Stillwater, all right? Love that place, all right? I want to tell everybody else about it. There's just something about it. Like, I enjoy it so much, I want you to enjoy it. When you really start experiencing Christ flowing in your life, when you're experiencing the nectar from the vine flowing through you, producing that beautiful fruit, you want, you, you get excited about it. And not only do you get excited about it, but you want to share that excitement. And people, it's contagious. People can feel it. They sense it, and they want it too. Well, the nectar I'm talking about is God's love. The nectar I'm talking about is God's love. If you come back to the passage again, he says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in me. You will abide in my love just as I kept my Father's commandments. Abide in his love. He said, this will be your joy. So one of the evidences of the holiness, the presence of God, is the love of God. Listen, the unconditional love of God. The sacrificial love of God. It's called the agape love of God. I can't produce it. God has to produce it through me. And just very quickly, let me clarify this because our culture is very confused about love these days. To truly love someone unconditionally does not mean that you have to agree with or even approve their choices or behavior. That's not love. How many of you have children? Do you have rules in your home for your children? Why do you have rules in your home for your children? Because you love your children. You have those rules and guidelines in place to protect your children. And you enforce those. You speak up about it. And when they break those rules, do you stop loving them? Do you kick them to the curb? I hope not. You still love them. You still sacrifice them. Your love is still unconditional. The Bible says, even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Mark chapter 10, verse 21, it's about the rich young ruler who walks away from Jesus and says, I'd rather my riches than follow you. But it says that Jesus still loved him. And in John chapter 13, verse 1, it says that Jesus loved his disciples to the very end, meaning the denier Peter and the betrayer Judas. He loved them to the very end. Even if you say, I don't want you, God, I prefer hell over it, he'll love you to the very entrance of hell. That's what it means to love like God loves. And see, once I know that and I experience that in my life, once I believe that, that's flowing through my veins, then it comes out of my life and it touches other people's lives and they're attracted to Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we have been in this series for a long time talking about what it means to live in your presence. And we have come to the conclusion, Lord, that your presence now lives in us if we're your followers. But Lord, we know there's a difference between having your presence and allowing your presence to control us, and that's what we want in our lives. So Lord, if, if there's anything in our lives right now, any sin we're spending energy on that's keeping us from experiencing your fullness, we want to confess it to you. We want to ask you to forgive us, Lord. For your word says we confess our sins. You 
are faithful and just. Forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, we just confess it. Right where you are right now, silently, right where you are. If you know it's there, if it's an attitude, if it's a habit, if it's an action, just confess it. Ask God to forgive you and take it. Father, if there's something we're trying to control or someone we're trying to control, Lord, it's wearing us out. We release that person. We release that situation to you. We trust you with him, her, it. And God, help us to listen to you. Help us to obey you. Allow us the joy of knowing your presence. May we live and abide in your love and may your love live and flow through our lives to others. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.